Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line today is Janet Schloss. Now, Janet has been in private practice as a nutritionist and naturopath for over 15 years, and she's currently completing her doctorate at the School of Medicine at the University of Queensland through the PA Hospital, Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane. She's also lectured at the Endeavour College for over 10 years and recently returned, and her main specialty is dealing or supporting people who have cancer, especially those going through traditional treatment. Janet has long been involved in research about cancer and nutrition, particularly for those individuals going through chemotherapy and radiation. She has a number of publications to her name, and she's now an international speaker talking about her research, both in Australia and overseas. Janet is also a well-known author in naturopathic circles, having written for Henry Osiki for a number of years, and she now has a number of publications to her name involving complementary medicine, cancer and chronic diseases, and she speaks both nationally and internationally about her research. Welcome, Janet. Glad to have you on on FX Radio. Thanks, Andrew. I'm very excited. (laughs) Um, I should also say, by the way, that I'm quite honoured to class you as one of my dear friends. So... um, Mm. Janet, today we're going to be talking about pain in various aspects, and I know it's a, it's a bit of an apple question because there's so many aspects, there's so many types of pain. But Absolutely. What sort of types of conditions do you see generally in your practice? I'm guessing that you'd see a fair share of, of, of those experiencing pain, right? Yeah, I do. I see, um, and, well, as you said, most of my, my practice is based around uh, cancer, but as chronic diseases and autoimmune diseases and stuff as well. So I see a number of people who are in pain and they can be in both chronic and acute pain, but I also see treatment-related pain, including nerve yeah. pain, um, drug-induced pain, if you want to call it that, yeah. or drug-related type pain. Uh, and it can be anywhere within the actual body. So it is an apple-like question, but there is a whole variety of things that come under that so so that when I, that i generally see yeah when we speak about pain we normally think about something having done that pain to you being you know you tripping over or an injury or something like that but what you deal with as you say is a treatment induced pain for instance with chemotherapy right that's right, and that's what like my a lot of my research is also about is what's called chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy. But there's also what's called chemotherapy induced myopathy, which is then the pain that occurs in their muscles and some of their joints. You've also then got some of the hormone treatments as well as some of the other chemotherapy agents, which cause um, major joint pains, and they uh, react differently to someone who has like an injury, say from sport or chronic use and all those type of things, and it can be quick onset as well, even though some of them are an accumulation-based side effect. So how do these various patients present then? If you're talking about uh, like the chemotherapy, peripheral neuropathy and myopathy 
I'm going to talk about first because they can present together, when, particularly when we're looking at people who are on either the taxanes or like vincristine. And doxetaxel in particular and vincristine cause a lot of myopathy within the actual legs as well as the peripheral neuropathy, which can be numbness, tingling or pain, shooting pains. But the muscle pain itself can, um, can be quite a chronic and acute at the same time. So the way they actually present for it can be they can be sitting there they can have what's called restless legs so they need to go up and down they can have shooting pains partly down their legs but not all the time uh, they'll have muscle weakness um, and then they can have the low grade chronic pain that also then goes with it and that can be both in their legs and in their arms and their hands and is there any other symptoms that come along with that yeah i guess you, there comes a lot with that there's the fatigue uh, they can't actually walk for very far, that's they, they limit their daily activities. Uh, they can't most of the time. They can't do exercise at all because of it limits uh, what they can actually do. And in, in, if you're looking at a treatment side, uh, their dose also has usually gets reduced um, in some cases and sometimes terminated, hmm. and they can't actually then continue, which can then have uh, problems with disease outcome. Yeah, and, and increased risk of reoccurrence. That's right, and that's their cancer. So basically, the life-saving poison they can't have. So it just allows Correct. the cancer to progress. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. So, so what about the other types of patient groups that you see? You know, sports injuries or autoimmune diseases. Tell me about those groups. How do they present? They're obviously very different. I don't see a lot of acute sports type injuries. Um, I'll be completely honest, but I do see a lot of people with autoimmune diseases, which will actually have a variety of, of different, more say chronic uh, pain. And you can have like your rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis type pain and disfigurement. Uh, obviously you, with SLE, it can come into a range of different things. Shogun syndrome also has a lot of pain, mm. um, which most people don't realize that you think the first thing they think of Shogun's is obviously the dry mouth, dry eyes. Yep. But um, there can be a lot of pain and weakness that uh, are experienced by people who have this particular particular autoimmune disease. And some of it can be nerve pain and some of it can actually be, which is really weird, but say the salivary glands can actually harden and um, cause a different type of pain. And what about uh, going flipping back to cancer? What about those people that are recovering from surgery and experience things like adhesions or the ropiness from, say, radiation cording. on their breast or yeah, yeah. the cording? Yeah, yeah, the cording um, is is a little bit different, and obviously you you do have the acute uh, pain from surgery, and you do need to to deal with that. And you've also got to be realised that some people are going to be on, on painkillers. Uh, you also do have adhesion pains and that's not just from the surgery but obviously from radiation as well. And some of the radiation pain may not experienced until like four or five months after radiation because mm. the adhesions had, had become more uh, acute. And then it depends also if they put on weight and what actually occurs there. And that can actually be quite sharp, can also interfere with, um, depending on where they have actually been radiated, their daily functions and ability. And it can be quite debilitating, especially when you're looking at head and neck type cancers. So let's sort of start to delve into some therapies here. Do you use proteolytic enzymes like bromelains, papains, and, and the plant based enzymes to help with? for simplicity's sake, say, digesting those uh, adhesions apart? I actually don't use all the proteolytic enzymes. I only use bromelain. Mm -hmm. Just, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. So, And um, bromelain's the only one that I do actually use as an antifibrillinic type activity, and I also use serapeptase. Aha. Um, 
So they're the two that I actually use as antifibrolytics that work on helping to decrease some of those adhesion type responses. So decreasing the amount of adhesions and fi um, fibrosis that they can actually get, um, as well as the pain response. And what other things do you use in adhesions or let's say post-radiation surgery? Uh, post-radiation. <laughs> post-radiation surgery. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But um, <laughs> post-radiation, I don't actually use, um, I will actually use more the bromelain and the serapeptase after they finish the radiation. And I'll also use um, vitamin E, yep. um, both internally and externally, depending on where it is. Sometimes um, when you're looking, like because they don't always work on a pain scenario, because um, some of it might actually be numb. Mm -hmm. But you're also looking at um, more nerve pain. And sometimes with the nerve pain, that I may actually use that like internally and externally. Internally, sometimes Jamaican dogwood, um, sometimes St. John's wort, but obviously St. John's wort is contraindicated for a lot of drugs. Yeah. And you have to be really careful with that. Sometimes I will actually use curcumin as well to try and decrease any of the inflammation that is around. Um, Again, depending externally, I will actually use capsaicin cream yeah. um, or St. John's wort cream. Again, being careful with who I actually use that on for nerve pain. Um, I will actually use magnesium to a certain extent as well, and both internally and externally. So tell me about the capsaicin, forgive me, the St. John's wort cream. Why are you cautious using that externally? You're talking about uh, photosensitization? Not just photosensitization. Well, some of it's photosensitization because obviously we're looking at around radiation and where it's actually occurring. But because it can um, go in uh, systemically, even though it's in mild dose, yeah. there, you know, some some people are, and particularly doctors, are it can be a bit funny about yeah. it. Yeah, and m so. would it have maybe a local site action or? Oh, I definitely think it would have a local site yeah. action. I don't think it would be a major um, type one, but. For some people, they don't feel comfortable using it. So it's not necessarily that I think it's going to have a major um, impact systemically on a topical things, but their response to it, you have to work with the patient. So if they feel uncomfortable using it because of different medications and stuff that they're actually on, then I, I won't necessarily use that for them. What about one herb called Corydalis, which is a bit of a favourite of mine, and, and it was touted for more visceral pain, but I've used it in, in arthralgias as well with good effect. What's, your, what's been your experience? I, you know, we've talked about this before, and I love Corydalis. It's actually one of the only liquid herbs um, that I use quite extensively for pain. And um, I, yes, it is supposed to be for visceral type pain, but I actually use it in all pain syndromes, um, and sometimes both acute and chronic with good results. So um, I, I think it's not, it shouldn't be just be limited to visual type pain. I think it can actually, I use it in a bit of a high dose if it's more chronic um, type pain, uh, sorry, in, in more acute type pain. Hmm. And then in lower doses, when we're looking at some of the chronic type ones in conjunction with say some of the, like other like liquid herbs. I, I think it's one of those cases of, you know, the knee bones connected to the, well, sartorius for one. <laughs> Well, yeah, but if you're also looking at visual type things, because the corydalis actually works on the epithelial within the stomach, you've also, they're going to have a, a systemic re response to pain and inflammation because of its effect on the stomach as well as in a, its own general systemic effect totally, on pain response. Totally agree. What else do you use corydalis with? Corydalis are normally um, used with Jamaican dogwood um, and uh, it, it depends um, on what I'm actually doing. I don't 
like I will use it in conjunction with tablets such as like Devil's Claw or um, Curcumin mm. separately. Yep. So I, I will do separate things because obviously I don't use them in a liquid together. Yeah. What What about or Bos or Boswellia? Yeah, depending I was gonna... on, on what we're actually looking at. Yeah. So what about, uh, I mean, this is a very old herb and it's to me it's lost a sort of bit of flavour because of the, the amount that you've got to use. You've got to use a punchy dose, but white willow. You do. White willow, um, I actually don't use. Yeah. <laughs> but there's got heaps of research on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, well, I think that back in the old days, you know, you'd see these formulae and they'd have, you know, 100 milligrams, big deal. <laughs> so no wonder it didn't yeah. work. Nowadays you're getting these really nice punchy doses. So I think maybe it's a, a herb that we should reinvestigate in using. I actually do. I, I definitely think so. I, you know, it, and I don't think it's actually taught quite a lot. And I think a lot of people have probably forgotten about it. Mm. But you are right. Like low doses, it doesn't really do much. And you do actually need a higher type dose. And I probably, like, to be honest, I haven't used it for ages. So, mm. oh, actually, it's in the um, the migraine care. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> and I use that for people with migraines. Right. So, so you are I using it. Use it. <laughs> I am you. using it. <laughs> now, well, okay, so let's talk about that with migraines. Tell me about the results that you're having. I have a number of ladies um, they are actually all ladies with um, major chronic migraines who have come to see me and I originally were putting them on some of like the liquid fever view and stuff and it was keeping it sort of at bay and also in conjunction with magnesium um, B2, those type of things, mm. as well as diet and, and stuff. So the, the number of migraines had actually decreased and I'm thinking of three ladies in particular at this stage um, and one was was very chronic. She would have a migraine at least every two weeks, which would knock her out for four days. Yeah, and that has reduced dramatically. And I've actually put her on the migraine care, and she hasn't had a migraine now for six months. Oh my goodness! What yeah. are what are surely with other therapies, right? Only with magnesium and um, or Advocale. Yeah, they're Str the only th three. That's the only three things she takes. Stress reduction, dietary intervention. We did dietary intervention, um, obviously with you know, the typical type migraine. Yeah, the avoidance responses. of the amines, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so she does those type of things. She does exercise because she does Pilates, um, walking, those type of things. Um, and that, that's where I'm main. But she was already doing a lot of that. So I didn't have to make major changes. It was mostly the, to the supplements that have made a ma massive change to how she feels and how she's reacting. Right. Now, I was going to ask you next about Pilates, so that was a beautiful segue, because that's something that you're quite a specialist in. Tell me what role massage, Pilates, other manual therapies, acupuncture, what role do they play in your practice when you're dealing with both acute and oh, chronic yeah. pain? Actually, a lot, because I don't believe in just one therapy. Um, so it really is coordinating a group of people to help people when they have pain, particularly looking at, at chronic type pain. And obviously that works in with Pilates because Pilates, I like Pilates probably more than some of the others because it is um, a more specialised effect. You have people usually, this is in a Pilates studio, yeah. um, where they're watching the people and they know if, if they're out or whatever. And because when you're looking at people in chronic pain, small um, increments can cause great pain if it's done wrong. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I really love Pilates and that they're, they're highly um, supervised. 
and with all the machines and those type of things it can actually work exceptionally well for people in chronic pain and work on small muscle groups um, quite concentrated to a system. Um, acupuncture I really like, acupuncture I, I find works really well for acute and chronic type pain um, depending on the actual person. Massage obviously is good for the stress type induced pain. Yeah. Not so, I think it has, you have to be very careful when we're looking at radiation or, um, and the same thing, you really need to be careful with radiation induced, uh, like fibrosis or adhesions yes. in their exercises. So you need to have people who are qualified in doing that. But I really find that there's a lot of benefit in sending people to, to massage. And I might point out for our listeners is that there's a, a huge difference in what most people will see as the, you know, the Pilates machine on the TVSN or something like that, as opposed yeah. to having a professionally directed uh, treatment program through a Pilates studio. The, the, the machines that I saw in your uh, clinic were mm -hmm. quite impressive, if not a bit scary. Yeah, like... Yeah, like torture chambers. Yeah. <laughs> they do look like torture yeah. chambers. The rack. <laughs> the rack. <laughs> yeah, especially because we do gyrotonics and all those type of stuff in the, in our studio. So, <laughs> so, so talking about stress, <laughs> what, what what role does stress play in accentuating the pain? Particularly, you know, your experience in dealing with cancer patients. These people are under a mm. heck of a lot of stress, and you've got mm. a physical manifestation that you have to intervene. What do you do? I, I do work on stress a lot with people. And if they are in a, a higher stress state, their pain um, sensations and how they actually feel is much more heightened. So they're going to feel worse. So I use a number of techniques in doing so. I do actually, um, depending on the person, definitely work with meditation. Um, not that I run meditation things, but I send them off to do meditation. Mm. Um Exercise I find to be a big one for them, if depending on their uh, mobility, yeah, sensations and how they what they can actually do and what they will actually enjoy. Um, so that's more the lifestyle type things and making sure they're getting enough rest and r relaxation. Because even though, but, and when I say relaxation, for some people being by themselves will actually make them worse because then they their head takes over so some of their relaxation is actually being in company with a company or with people and that will actually help for them to be relaxed and decrease some of their anxiety and stress um, on a more supplemental type side um, i will actually use uh, a number of things depending on the actual person uh, for anxiety i actually use a lot of uh, ultrathenine oh, uh, yes, particularly yes. Yeah, particularly with the green tea things. And it can be used in conjunction with some of the other drugs. And it doesn't have an accumulative effect and it only works for a certain amount of time. Um, on the other side, I will use a different range of ginsengs. Um, I do use tyrosine as well, again, depending. Um, and one of my favourite herbs of all time would have to be like withania. Mm. Uh, to, to help. Such a lovely herb, withania, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You can it use high doses so of properties. nourishing. Yeah, it's a beautiful herb. Energizing yeah. without being stimulating. Exactly. It's, it's like the perfect coffee. <laughs> it is like the perfect coffee. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so tell me about other chronic conditions like your autoimmune diseases. How, mm -hmm. do you, how do you manage those with herbs and supplements and indeed with Pilates and manual therapies? 
Well, again, it will depend on the person, their disease state, uh, how they're perceiving it and what they're experiencing. So um, if it is like, and it depends on the type of response. Like if we're going to look at joints, number one, um, say like rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis, um, it will vary for supplementation. I do use glucosamine, but very rarely. Yeah. I know it, it does work in about I don't know, 70% of people is what the studies actually say. But um, according with Sam and her research, it does actually work more in the gut. So if they yes. have more gut this, like problems, then it will actually have a better effect. The same thing with green-lipped muscle. Actually, I, I would use green-lipped muscle probably over glucosamine. Now, this is, I should point out to, the, to our listeners that this is Dr. Samantha Coulson who did yes. some work with, at PA Hospital looking at how glucosamine doesn't just go as a package from your gut to your joint, but is actually metabolised by gut bacteria. Is that correct? That's correct. And what she's done, she's done further research and stuff now, is that nearly anything that we intake um, is metabolised by our gut microbe bone yep. um, or microbes um, rather than just being directly effective on our lining of our stomach yeah. or intestines. Let me concentrate on bromelain for a little bit because it's just, it's got some wonderful research. Like it, from everything from sinusitis to pancreatic cancer with Jim Cytobeam. Um, yes. uh, tell me how you use bromelain and, and what sort of dosage do you go up to? Any cautions or contraindications? Bromelain has been shown to be effective in conjunction with like pancreatic chemotherapies such as dincinamide or Gemstar, whichever you want to call it. And the, the dosage is dosage-wise, um, I use bromelain at a minimum of 600 milligrams up to um, usually depending on the size of the person uh, will depend on the on how much I actually use, but mm -hmm. I can go up to 1,200 in bigger individuals. Yeah. And I only, like bromelain to be effective systemically has to be taken on an empty stomach at least an hour away from food, uh, like before food. So it does not have any um, digestive ability whatsoever. So it really is important. Like I usually get them to take two on waking and two before bed, and then, um, like depending through the day, like I said, depending on dosage wise, yeah. because it's easy for people on on waking and before bed because it's not going to keep them awake anyway. No, that's right. Um, so that's how I, I normally do it. Try and make things as easy as possible. Yeah. Uh, Contraindications, anything that's going to have a blood thinning effect, you really need to be careful with bromelain. So if they're on warfarin in particular, mm -hmm. uh, if they're doing clexane-type injections, um, and there's a number of new drugs as well, but most there's a lot of people who are on aspirin, on low-dose aspirin. However, in saying that, sometimes when they're on low-dose aspirin, which is only 100 milligrams, you can use bromelain, but not in high, as much of a high dose. Yeah. So are you still able to get an effective therapeutic dose into them? Normally I do about 400 milligrams and see how they go, make sure that they're not, you know, bruising themselves or bleeding yeah. in any way. And do you tend, um, do you tend to combine then, it with, say, uh, you know, quercetin or, or, you know, devil's claw or something like that if, if you've got a contraindication? Uh, I, if I have a contraindication, I will probably, if I'm not going to use bromelain, I will use uh, different things because obviously curcumin has some blood thinning abilities as well, so you have to be careful in regards to that. Yeah. Um, and I do use bromelain actually a lot after surgery. And I will actually use it a lot with, with radiation, like I said, particularly if it's going to affect the lungs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I will actually use bromelain during radiation if they're like 
um, if there is some form of lung or major lung involvement to try and decrease any fibroid, like fibrosis that can actually occur. Janet, can you give me some hints and tips for our listeners about how to treat pain in autoimmune disease? What, what sort of things do you think are particular little nifty hints and tips? Okay, number one is vitamin D, and it's probably not always the first one that people would think of for pain. And what they have actually, well, they maybe they do now because of all the research that's coming out, but low vitamin D levels um, in anyone, but particularly with autoimmune diseases, which then, you know, you're not sure if it's a cause or a, a part of it. Mm. Um, if it's actually lower, their pain um, is a lot more heightened. So increasing vitamin D for me is really important in autoimmune disease across the board. But um, I use, make sure I, I monitor nearly everyone's vitamin D anyway, because I think it's one of the most important things when we're looking at pain. There was even, I know this is a diversion, but there was a study that was actually done on ladies who were on Famara. Yeah. And they actually found that the ladies who were low or deficient in vitamin D had much more joint and muscle pains than those who didn't. And, and they- when they were actually Given high-dose vitamin D, that was all subsided. And that was the interesting thing. They used quite high-dose. I think it was 10,000 IU, correct? No, that was 50,000. 50,000. How often? Once a week? Uh, Once a week, yes. Once a week, right. Um, I think I saw something where they used 10,000 IU per day. Yeah, there was one that was done on that, and there was also a study done at the PA, which used 30,000. Gotcha. But so, yeah, 10,000 I, I yeah. used to get it up at a, at a quick rate over 12 weeks. Yeah, but I think um, speaking with other practitioners, it seems to be that the weekly dosing is much easier, much much better compliance. What do you find? Yes. Yeah. I definitely find that too because a lot of people are taking a lot of other things and to decrease the amount that they're taking sometimes makes a big difference. And you can, you're only going to do that for a certain amount of time and then they can actually take a lower dose on a regular basis Yeah. once and it's actually up. Um, as you will know, probably one of my favourite things is curcumin or turmeric, and I use that quite extensively mm. um, in a lot of different pain scenarios. In most of my autoimmune diseases, I will use turmeric um, or curcumin for that. Um, it will be I use it a lot for pain. I find um, in particular it works really well for joint type pains more than visual yep. type pains. Um, and I find that it doesn't work very well, like on a completely different scenario, like women's type. Um, period pain. I don't find that it works very well for that. But I do find that it works for more the autoimmune type responses um, and their pain response. And I think that's also part of the anti-inflammatory agent as well as NRF2 regulation. But um, that's one of the things that I've actually found for that. The other ones I will actually use, depending, will be Corydalis would would play a part um, at certain aspects. I will actually use bromelain for that. Um, in conjunction, and sometimes I'll also use gotcha cola, which um, is not well known for pain, mm. but it, it can help in certain autoimmune disease type pains, um, and obviously ginger as well. Yeah, ginger is a great like dispersant as well as being an anti-inflammatory, right? Yeah. Janet, can I just get you to review for our listeners your research? Because I think it's very important research into chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, or CIPN. Can you explain to me what your research entailed and what your results were? Absolutely. I can definitely do that. It's one of my favourite topics, as you well know. Um, as actually in looking at a pain scenario, of which we haven't actually talked about, which is vitamin B12, and um, vitamin B12 in itself can actually cause uh, shooting pains and 
uh, peripheral neuropathy in itself as a deficiency and those signs and symptoms occur in 70 to 80% of people who have a serum B12 liver, a level of 250 or less um, or if you're looking at the active B12 then you're looking at anything below 35 can actually cause um, those type of pains. My study looked at uh, neurotoxic chemotherapy drugs, in particular looking at taxanes and vincristine, and we did a randomised placebo-controlled trial um, on these particular patients looking at uh, B vitamin complex and obviously placebo. Uh -huh. And what we ran over the patient's chemotherapy regime and then three months later because you can act, this particular side effect can get a delayed effect in certain individuals um, and is quite well known because part of it is an accumulative in some aspects but partly not. The reason we looked at B vitamins is because the B vitamins in particular B1, B6 and B12 can themselves as a deficiency cause peripheral neuropathy, like I just said with B12, yep. and what what we're looking at is that that may predispose patients um, to an earlier and more severe onset of it because it's exposing the nerve fibres mm. which the chemotherapy is accumulating. B6, though, you have to be careful with because obviously toxicity causes peripheral neuropathy as well. So what we actually found was that the, the B vitamin complex wasn't statistically significant. However, that may be due to the numbers because we did find a trend towards the people who were actually taking it. The patient's uh, perception of it, which because they did a, we, we got them to do a diary, actually showed that the people on B vitamins found that their sensory neuropathy was much more decreased um, with those taking B vitamins versus placebo. So that was statistically significant. Probably the biggest outcome is that B12 was actually found statistically significant for decreasing the onset and severity of chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. Wow. We, we, yeah, we had one patient in particular um, who we've now published um, a paper on in support of Cancer Care Journal, mm -hmm. and she was actually found to be deficient in B12 post-chemotherapy. Her peripheral neuropathy was very severe, lots of pain, numbness up to her hips and up to her elbows. Um, upon goodness. finding that she was, yeah, it was really severe. And she was seeing the, the physio at the PA hospital. She, we then obviously pulled her from the study, but we kept following her. We got the oncologist to give her an IM or intramuscular B12 injection. And then we got the B vitamins to her and she took that for three months. Within a week after starting the the, getting the, the intradermal muscular B12 and the B vitamins, her peripheral neuropathy was down to her feet and her hands. Within two months, it was in the tips of her fingers and her toes, which is now permanent, yeah. which is what we're, we're thinking was probably due um, to the chemotherapy itself. But, you know, had she been on B12, that may also be reversed. But yeah. at this stage, it wasn't. And forgive me, did you say at the beginning that the B12 deficiency occurs in 70%? Uh, no, the B12, the pain, like the shooting pain and peripheral pain occur, occurs in 70% of ah. people who are B12 deficient. Right. And how many people um, are B12 deficient who undertake chemotherapy? Has there been any... Um... No, there's been no studies because most people are not tested for B12 prior to chemotherapy, which is one of the things that part of my research and talking to people and doctors and oncologists and mm. everything is to start getting them to test B12 prior to treatment. There's an, they were going to do a follow-up 
um, research project at the PA, actually at the MATA hospital mm. with one of a, another oncologist uh, where we're just going to focus on B12 first, where we're going to have a treatment group and uh, just a control group. And we're going to test everyone's B12 levels, like it's beginning and throughout, just to see what can actually happen. Because at this stage, there is only one research paper, which was done in 1992 by VU, that actually found that patients going through chemotherapy and radiation, their B12 actually decreases. And they did an accumulate, it was actually quite an extensive study and they did a lot of graphs whereby when they were actually in their chemotherapy regime, it decreased, then it would come back up a little bit and then decrease and it was like a continual flow. And then after they finished, it took a long time then for the B12 to come up, which would also make sense when you're looking at their red blood cells reduction and all those type of things. But that's the only study in 1992 that anyone's actually done on B12 and chemotherapy and radiation. And that was also trying to verify which tests picked up a B12 deficiency earlier, which is why then they found the hollow transcobalamin or the active B12 test actually is a better um, test to detect early B12 deficiency compared to the serum B12. I've got three questions for you. Sure. (laughs) Um, The first one is how does peripheral neuropathy tend to first present? Peripheral neuropathy in most people will actually present as uh, numbness, tingling and pain in their fingers and their toes, depending on their chemotherapy regime. Um, Some will just get uh, pins and needles um, and shooting pain. Some will then go into numbness. Uh, And then it will progress what's called a glove stocking presentation. So it starts in their fingers and then goes up their hands into their arms. For the feet, it usually starts in their toes goes under the foot, Mm. up into the heel, and then progresses up towards the knee and hip, depending on how bad the person is presenting it with. So I think the absolute absolute minimum message that anybody um, undertaking chemotherapy should take home is any tingling in the hands and feet experience should be addressed immediately. Yeah, I I definitely think that is the case. And what what we also found was that some of the people who were actually on the B vitamins, if they got really sick and were unable to take them, like they, maybe we were prevention, preventing some of the neuropathy, mm-hmm. there was, an, there was um, three ladies in particular, um, like did really well right up into the last chemotherapy. They got so sick, they, they didn't take their B vitamins for a week and they developed peripheral neuropathy. Wow. Going back onto the B vitamins, it decreased it a little bit, but it didn't get rid of it then. Gotcha. So So what I was going to say, my next question was, um, do you think maybe there's a case then for blind intervention with at least a multivitamin to make sure that they're getting at least some B12 and B6 into their bodies? That is possible because obviously... um, depending on it. I, I will also say sometimes I'm not a big fan of multivitamins um, as a, a general rule, but in certain circumstances, I think that they're quite valid for people um, who aren't going to take a, a higher dose. And we did a dose of B12 at looking at 1,000 micrograms and B6 was 40 milligrams and B1 was 100 milligrams. Mm-hmm. But if they're not going to take anything else, I think a multi in that case would be recommended. And there are some oncologists who do recommend that not for any other reason other than just keeping their nutrition up because they're obviously their eating habits are may not be the best. And do you think maybe that multivitamin, is there a uh, place um, for using it maybe in other types of pain, not just chemotherapy? 
like as this base. I mean, I've always viewed multivitamins as insurance, but I, I tend not to use multivitamins a lot myself either. No, uh, I'm, I'm, I very rarely actually, I don't actually prescribe multivitamins mm. at all. No, that's um, fine. And I will be, I'm actually much more specific. Yeah. So, but I, but I do feel like if you're looking, say, let's have a look at diabetes um, peripheral neuropathy, benfontamine, which is the active form of B1 in higher dose, has been found to be able to reverse some of the peripheral neuropathy experienced by diabetics. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and- so in that case, it also then decreases a lot of the pain, and that's just on B1. Um, B6 is actually used for hand and feet uh, syndromes. Yeah. Decreases a lot of pain that's associated with that, both with chemotherapy and other disease states. I think that's some of the, like when we're looking, like we do, there's a range of things that we can use for pain, but the, the B vitamins um, in particular may actually play a certain part. What about um, lipoic acid in the peripheral neuropathy, especially with diabetics, but in other instances, like for instance, chemotherapy? There's only one study on lipoic acid, um, which was used for oxaliplatin, and they did find it to be of benefit for the chronic peripheral neuropathy that can actually develop for oxaliplatin, which is obviously used for bowel cancer. Um, but there, it was a really low study. I think there was only like 20 or 30 people in yeah. it. Um, trend? And no other study, and no other studies have been conducted. Trend? What was the trend with it? I know it was statistically significant. Okay. But there, it was that it wasn't placebo controlled. It was just given to them. So what we need is a better trial. It's an open trial. That's exactly right. Actually, in saying that too, one of the other ones that showed a lot of benefit was ginkgo. Oh really, ginkgo biloba? Interactions? Uh, again, you're going to have to be careful with any blood thinning and PAF, PAF. Yeah. Um, medications and a lot of some not a lot but a number of them are given clexane during treatment Mm. so you do actually have to be careful with that but ginkgo um, even post-treatment obviously increases nerve growth factor similar to um, acetyl-l carnitine which i actually use a lot Um, i will make mention right now that you should never use acetyl-l carnitine during chemotherapy Mm. Um, there was a study that actually showed that it can make cipn a lot worse but as post-treatment Acetyl-L-carnitine can work exceptionally well for both the neuropathy and nerve development, and that's not just in, well, nerve growth factor, increasing nerve growth factor, not just in chemotherapy, but in anything that requires nerve regeneration. You can actually use acetyl-L-carnitine, and it also helps with their energy component and their pain. And indeed, that was one of the fantastic nerve learning pain. things that you gave to me as as as, you, as my mentor. Ah. <laughs> Seriously, it's changed the way that I practice. So thank you so much for that. Janet, there's so many other things I could go into. (laughs) Talk for hours. But unfortunately, we haven't got enough time today. So I might invite you back at another time and we might delve into a few little little other anecdotes into how you treat various um, patient groups. But um, can I just ask you as a last little wrap-up, is there any hints and tips that you can give our listeners that you think are really important in treating pain in chemo, autoimmune disease type of patients? Always look and treat the person first and where their actual pain is, what's causing their actual pain because obviously you can have cancer pain um, that they're actually experiencing. You can have it from drugs. Do look at any of the auxiliary drugs that they're actually on their mental state because if they're actually feeling really down at that stage which is quite common that everybody going through cancer treatment will go down Mm. at some stage um or go through periods of it and that will make their pain 
and discomfort worse, the more fatigued that they actually are, the more pain that they will actually use. And you definitely need to look at what pain medication that they're actually on. And when talking about that, it's not just cancer patients, that's also any other people on autoimmune diseases and any chronic illnesses. So I guess it's always something of mine is you always treat the person first, not just what they're presenting with. So well said. And a true naturopathic axiom which we must remember. Thanks. I I think it's imperative. Janet, thank you so much for joining us today and for imparting your absolute wealth of knowledge and and humanity, and I've got to say, in treating your patients. I so thank you much for joining us on FX Radio. Oh, you're more than welcome. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I always love talking to you. (laughs) This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.